Chapter 16 of Consuelo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Christine Rucker, October 29, 2021, Westford, Massachusetts. Consuelo by George Sand. Chapter 16. The Count, seeing that Consuelo was insensible to the stimulus of gain, tried to flatter her vanity by offering her jewels and ornaments, but these she refused. Zustiniani at first imagined that she was aware of his secret intentions, but he soon saw that it was but a species of rustic pride, and that she would receive no recompense until she conceived that she had earned it by working for the prosperity of his theatre. He obliged her, however, to accept a white satin dress, observing that she could not appear with propriety in her muslin robe in his saloon, and adding that he would consider it a favor if she would abandon the attire of the people. She submitted her fine figure to the fashionable milliners, who turned it to good account, and did not spare the material. Thus transformed in two days into a woman of the world, and induced to accept a necklace of fine pearls, which the Count presented to her as payment for the evening when she sang before him and his friends. She was beautiful, if not according to her own peculiar style of beauty, at least as she should be, to be admired by the vulgar. This result, however, was not perfectly attained. At the first glance, Consuelo neither struck nor dazzled anybody. She was always pale, and her modest, studious habits took from her look that brilliant glance, which we witness in the eyes of women whose only object is to shine. The basis of her character, as well as the distinguishing peculiarity of her countenance, was a reflective seriousness. One might see her eat and talk and weary herself with the trivial concerns of daily life without even supposing that she was pretty. But once the smile of enjoyment, so easily allied to serenity of soul, came to light up her features, how charming she became. And when she was further animated, when she interested herself seriously in the business of the peace, when she displayed tenderness exaltation of mind and the manifestation of her inward life and hidden power, she shone resplendent with all the fire of genius and love. She was another being. The audience were hurried away, passion-stricken as it were, annihilated at pleasure, without her being able to explain the mystery of her power. What the Count experienced for her, therefore, astonished and annoyed her strangely. There were in this man of the world artistic chords which had never yet been struck, and which she caused to thrill with unknown emotions. But this revelation could not penetrate the patrician soul sufficiently to enable him to discern the impotence and poverty of the means by which he attempted to lead away a woman so different from those he had hitherto endeavored to corrupt. He took patience and determined to try the effects of emulation. He conducted her to his box in the theater that she might witness Correa's success, and that ambition might be awakened in her, but the result was quite different from what might have been anticipated. 
Consuelo left the theater cold, silent, fatigued, and in no way excited by the noise and applause. Correa was deficient in solid talent, noble sentiment, and well-founded power, and Consuelo felt quite competent to form an opinion of this forced, factitious talent, already vitiated at its source by selfishness and excess. She applauded unconsciously uttered words of formal approval, and disdained to put on a mask of enthusiasm for one who she could neither fear nor admire. The Count, for a moment, thought her under the influence of a secret jealousy of the talents, or at least of the person, of the prima donna. This is nothing, said he, to the triumphs which you will achieve when you appear before the public as you have already appeared before me. I hope you are not frightened by what you see. No, Signor Count, replied Consuelo, smiling. The public frightens me not for I never think of it. I only think of what might be realized in the part which Correa fills in so brilliant a manner, but in which there are many defects which she does not perceive. What, do you not think of the public? No, I think of the piece, of the intentions of the composer, of the spirit of the part, and of the good qualities and defects of the orchestra, from the former of which we are to derive advantage while we are to conceal the latter by a louder intonation at certain parts. I listen to the choruses which are not always satisfactory, and require a more strict direction. I examine the passages on which all one's strength is required, and also those, of course, where it may advantageously be reserved. You will perceive, Senor Count, that I have many things to think of besides the public know nothing about all that I have mentioned, and can teach me nothing. This grave judgment and serious inquiry so surprised Zustiniani that he could not utter a single question, and asked himself, with some trepidation, what hold a gallant like himself could have on a genius of this stamp. The appearance of the two debutantes was preceded by all the usual inflated announcements, and this was the source of continual discussion and difference of opinion between the Count and Porpora, Consuelo and her lover. The old master and his pupil blamed the quack announcements and all those thousand unworthy tricks which have driven us so far into folly and bad faith. In Venice, during those days, the journals had not much to say as to public affairs. They did not concern themselves with the composition of the audience. They were unaware of the deep resources of public advertisements, the gossip of biographical announcements, and the powerful machinery of hired applause. There was plenty of bribing, and not a few cavals, but all this was concocted in coteries, and brought about through the instrumentality of the public, warmly attached to one side or sincerely hostile to the other. Art was not always the moving spring. Passions great and small, foreign alike to art and talent, then as now, came to do battle in the temple, but they were not so skillful in concealing these sources of discord and in laying them to the account of pure love for art, 
At bottom, indeed, it was the same vulgar, worldly spirit with a surface less complicated by civilization. Sustiniani managed these affairs more as a nobleman than as the conductor of a theater. His ostentation was a more powerful impulse than the avarice of ordinary speculators. He prepared the public in his saloons and warmed up his representations beforehand. His conduct, it is true, was never cowardly or mean, but it bore the puerile stamp of self-love, a busy gallantry, and the pointed gossip of good society. He therefore proceeded to demolish piece by piece with considerable art the edifice so lately raised by his own hands to the glory of Korea. Everybody saw that he wanted to set up in its place the miracle of talent, and as the exclusive possession of this wonderful phenomenon was ascribed to him, poor Consuelo never suspected the nature of his intentions towards her. Although all Venice knew that the Count, disgusted with the conduct of Correa, was about to introduce in her place another singer, while many added grand mystification for the public and great prejudice to the theater, for his favorite is a little street singer who has nothing to recommend her except her fine voice and tolerable figure. Hence arose fresh cabals for Korea, who went about playing the part of an injured rival, and who implored her extensive circle of adorers and their friends to do justice to the insolent pretensions of the Zingarella. Hence also new cabals in favor of Consuelo by a numerous party who, although differing widely on other subjects, united in a wish to mortify Correa and elevate her rival in her place. As to the veritable dilettanti of music, they were equally divided between the opinion of the serious masters, such as Porpora, Marcello, and Giomelli, who predicted, with the appearance of an excellent musician, the return of the good old usages and casts of performance, and the anger of second-rate composers, whose compositions Correa had always preferred, and who now saw themselves threatened with neglect in her person. The orchestra, dreading to set to work on scores which had been long laid aside, and which consequently would require study, all those retainers of the theater, who in every thorough reform always foresaw an entire change of the performers, even the very scene-shifters, the tire-women, the hairdressers, all were in movement for or against the debutante at Saint Samuel. In point of fact, the debut was much more in everybody's thoughts than the new administration or the acts of Doge Pietro Grimaldi, who had just then peaceably succeeded his predecessor, Luigi Paisani. Consuelo was exceedingly distressed at these delays and petty quarrels connected with her new career. She would have wished to come out at once, without any other preparation than what concerned herself and the study of the new piece. She understood nothing of those endless intrigues, which seemed to her more dangerous than useful, and which she felt she could very well dispense with. 
But the Count, who saw more clearly into the secrets of his profession, and who wished to be envied his imaginary happiness, spared nothing to secure partisans, and made her come every day to his palace to be presented to all the aristocracy of Venice. Consuelo's modesty and reluctance ill-supported his designs, but he induced her to sing, and the victory was at once decisive, brilliant, incontestable. Anzoletto was far from sharing the repugnance of his betrothed for these secondary means. His success was by no means so certain as hers. In the first place, the Count was not so ardent in his favor, and the tenor whom he was to succeed was a man of talent who would not be easily forgotten. It is true he also sang nightly at the Count's palace, and Consuelo in their duets brought him out admirably, so that, urged and sustained by the magic of a genius superior to his own, he often attained great heights. He was, on these occasions, both encouraged and applauded, but when the first surprise, excited by his fine voice, was over, more especially when Consuelo had revealed herself, his deficiency was apparent, and frightened even himself. This was the time to work with renewed vigor, but in vain Consuelo exhorted him and appointed him to meet her each morning in the court Minelli, where she persisted in remaining in spite of the remonstrances of the Count, who wished to establish her more suitably. Anzaletto had so much to do, so many visits, engagements, and intrigues on hand, such distracting anxieties to occupy his mind that neither time nor courage was left for study. In the midst of these perplexities, seeing that the greatest opposition would be given by Correa, and also that the Count no longer gave himself any trouble about her, Anzaletto resolved to visit her himself in order to deprecate her hostility. As may easily be conceived, she had pretended to take the matter very lightly, and treated the neglect and contempt of Zustiniani with philosophical unconcern. She mentioned and boasted everywhere that she had received brilliant offers from the Italian opera at Paris, and calculating on the reverse, which she thought awaited her rival, laughed outright at the illusions of the Count and his party. Anzaletto thought that with prudence and by employing a little deceit, he might disarm his formidable enemy, and having perfumed and adorned himself, he waited on her at one in the afternoon, an hour when the siesta renders visits unusual and the palace is silent. End of chapter 16